Welcome back to the Agorist Attorney Podcast, where I am a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer, and we talk about topics from the perspective of a freedom-minded attorney. I am Patricia, aka Patty, aka the Agorist Attorney, and today is Friday, March 31st, 2023, and this is episode number 11. I'm going to continue with the University of Montana article, picking up where we left off with uh, section 3A, which is a section called Dude, Where Am I Rights? As always, a link to the article will be in the show notes. So at the end of the last episode, you got a little editorializing by myself talking about, you know, what are you going to do if you get arrested, you get a ticket, you get a, um, you know, whatever, you get sued. Um, I have lots of thoughts on it, but my number one thought is, is not this stuff because you really, really need to learn the rules and use the rules to protect yourself. You can have really noble aspirations of fixing the system, bettering the system, collapsing the system, living outside the system, that's great. But once you get crossways of the system, you gotta find a way to get yourself back out. And the best way to do that is to either hire someone who really knows what they're doing or learn how to do it yourself. Now, I compare this to electrical work um, it's not rocket science, but if you screw it up, you might burn your house down. So um, that's kind of my comparison and my recommendation. So we're going to keep going with this dude, where are my right section? Um, I like this section because it starts to actually refute some of this stuff with citations. Um, and the sites are in the article. So go ahead and click on the article link and, and check it out if you want to read it. So continues saying, sovereign citizens often cite the U.S. Constitution, the UCC, the Magna Carta, the Articles of Confederation, and numerous other quasi-legal documents to support their assertions. Although authoritative sounding, the true basis for a citizen's constitutional rights is found in the constitutional it's Constitution itself. Um, again, I said this earlier, um, don't think that this is me, I don't think the article either, saying that your rights are granted by the Constitution. I think it's just saying, like, the rights protected in the U.S. are found in the Constitution. So continuing on, the U.S. Supreme Court is the only legal body that can interpret and give legal effect to the Constitution. Accordingly, sovereign... Citizen citations to and reliance on dictionaries, state court opinions, specific capitalization, or state records are absolutely misplaced and unavailing. Section 1, the U.S. Constitution and Constitutional Rights. On July 4, 1776, the Second Continental Congress adopted the United States Declaration of Independence. As stated by the Declaration's preamble, all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, and they derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. These aspirational statements do not provide substantive rights, nor do they have the force of organic law. In the Declaration's final section, however, it is proclaimed that the United States owed no allegiance or loyalty to the British Crown and were no longer subject to its laws. This section alone, arguably, is the only statement in the Declaration that does more than provide a statement of facts or grievances. It provides the justification for the American Revolution. Effectively, other than establishing that the United States of right ought to be free and independent states, the Declaration has no binding or legal force. 
for all y'all out there that like to cite this and claim that the United States is founded as a Christian nation, that goes for y'all too. Um, it establishes that the right ought to be free and independent states. There's no binding legal force in this thing, okay? So that applies to everybody, and so please don't use this chunk as legal justification for anything. All right, moving on. The Articles of Confederation, which first established a federal government in 1781, likely lost their binding force with the ratification required under Article 7 of the proposed Constitution. Under Article 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution, also known as the Supremacy Clause, only the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, of which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Accordingly, members of the federal government who swear oaths to the Constitution, as well as the judges in every state, are bound by this supreme law. In some, the Constitution and statutes or treaties lawfully made under the Constitution are the binding law that citizens are protected by and must, must follow. Nowhere in there is listed the Bible. Nowhere in there is listed the Magna Carta. Nowhere in there is listed Black's Law Dictionary or anything else. It's just not in there. So if somebody starts citing those things to you, you can say, well, that's lovely from a philosophical standpoint, but it's not binding here in the U.S. All right, here's two, interpreting the Constitution and case law. In rebutting sovereign citizen arguments, however, it is necessary to establish what is and what is not binding law under the Constitution, as well as who has the power to decide those questions. Academic or elementary as it may seem to lawyers and people who sat through a lot of years of law school or clerked, um, sovereign citizens routinely use as evidence non-constitutional and non-binding authorities. Under Article 3, Section 2, the power of the federal judiciary is extended to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made or which shall be made under their authority. In Mar Marbury v. Madison, the Supreme Court established its role in reviewing the laws in the Constitution. If a law be in opposition to the Constitution, if both the law and the Constitution apply to a particular case, so that the court must either decide that case conformably to the law, disregarding the Constitution, or conformably to the Constitution, disregarding the law, the court must determine which of these conflicting rules governs that case. It's one or the other. Either the, either the law is, is, you know, complying with constitutional requirements or it doesn't. Um, the judicial power of constitutional and federal statutory review, which is vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish, has also necessarily been extended to review state civil and criminal cases that implicate the Constitution or federal law. The authority of the judiciary stemming from Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution applies to all cases affecting ambassadors or other public ministers and consuls to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction to controversies to which the united states shall be a party to controversies between two or more states between a state citizen oh sorry between a state and citizens of another state between citizens of different states between citizens of the same state claiming lands under grants of different states and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign state citizens are subject so there's a whole diagram there about uh, you know when this applies and how but notably the power extends to all cases and controversies enumerated including admiralty claims belying a commonly held sovereign citizen belief that the federal courts sit in admiralty only surprise 
even the law, the constitutional law of the U.S. and and the related documents that are binding say, guess what? The courts also sit in admiralty and all this other stuff. So additionally, the distinction between common law, equity, which is contract law, and admiralty law is not jurisdictional, but affects the form of relief provided by the courts. And as Article 3, Section 2 makes clear, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. In short, the common law states, states, sorry, in short, woo, the United States Supreme Court is the final arbiter of constitutional interpretation and application to state and federal laws in every case. Okay, what the heck does that mean? It doesn't matter if it's a criminal case, if it's a common law claim. And common law is just, you know, generally accepted laws that aren't codified by statute. Like I work in construction and architects and engineers and other professionals are essentially, not essentially, they are governed by the professional standard of care. The professional standard of care is typically not written down in a law because the professional standard of care is common law. It's fact dependent and it is the standard by which a reasonably trained or similarly trained professional in a similar industry, in a similar location, on similar projects would have behaved. Um, it's, a, it's a reasonable standard and it's common law. And it cracks me up when these sovereign citizens are like, well, according to common law, you know, you're this lawyer, you're an agent of the crown. I'm like, huh, in fact, my entire job is based on common law. And my job is to make sure that the contracts we sign don't get sideways to the common law standard. Um, because, huh, guess what? If you agree to something that's not the, the, the generally accepted professional standard of care, your professional liability insurance doesn't work. So, um I, this is, I, you know, I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff. So it cracks me up when they start arguing with me about common law because it's like, it doesn't matter. The United States Supreme Court is the final arbiter of this interpretation regardless of common law, civil law, admiralty law, criminal law. doesn't matter. So moving on. More specifically, the only portion of a Supreme Court opinion that is legally binding is the judicial holding. Those parts of a court's opinion that were necessary for the decision. The Supreme Court and common law rules of interpretation mandate that words and phrases should be analyzed and applied in light of their context, not in isolation. In Hines versus Grimes Packing Company, the court admonished a party that attempted to narrowly define a statutory term by cherry-picking favorable language. Similarly, pulling distinct phrases from judicial opinions or contracts without consideration of the context text can be very misleading. This is especially true for individuals persuaded by sovereign citizens off-quoted language, which is effectively given a talismanic significance. Editorial by me. There are no magic words, there are no magic wands, there are no magic cases in law. You've got to get this stuff from the holding, the holding of the case that you're trying to cite, and it's got to make sense in context with the facts. So, if you've got a case that's got nothing to do with the case you're pulling the site from, you're going to get in trouble because the judge is just going to read it and they're going to say, you know, if you're a lawyer, there's a counsel, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? And you're going to go, I don't know. So, and then they're going to throw it out. So you, you, it has to be in context. It has to make sense. Um, it has to be good law that hasn't been overturned. Um, lawyers call it shepherdizing because there's a, a specific kind of trademarked procedure um, to make sure that those cases are current. And funny enough, I, I put a couple of cases into, into chat GPT the other day and I said, 
hey, Chad GPT, can you, can you shepherdize this for me? And it was like, nope, because it's behind a paywall. So you can do it, you know, in physical books. It's, there's a way to do that. Um, but, you know, especially these older cases, these older, these older rulings, um, you got to check and see if the Supreme Court's changed their mind since, since it's been decided or if something changed or if a law's changed or a statute changed or technology changed, whatever. Um, you can't just whip out a case, find a sentence somewhere in page, you know, 400 of 2000 of this voluminous Supreme Court opinion and go, this is the law. It, it just doesn't work like that. It, you know, again, the law is not rocket science, but it does take a little, a little doing. So, all right, moving on. Next section here is section three. It's called fringe on the flag. Relatedly, the flag in a courtroom does not signal that a court is sitting in admiralty jurisdiction or somehow limit a court's authority over a defendant. 4 U.S.C. section one states that the flag of the United States shall be 13 horizontal stripes, alternate red and white, and the union of the flag shall be 48 stars, white and a blue field. In 1925, Attorney General John Sargent addressed the use of the fringe on the flag pursuant to Army Regulations, number 260-10. In finding that the matter is one of those over which Congress may exercise control if it will, the absence of a statute meant that the question of a fringe may be determined by the President as Commander-in-Chief. The last executive order on the matter, Executive Order 10834, signed by President Eisenhower, himself a military man, didn't address this issue. Ultimately, no relief can be afforded based on fringe around the flag, as fringe is not considered to be a part of the flag, and it is without heraldic significance. Um, in other words, fringe or no fringe, probably based on whoever was doing the purchasing at the time the courthouse was built, remodeled, or flags were replaced. Um, it's literally a checkbox on a form, fringe or no fringe, it doesn't mean anything, it just, it, it doesn't have any kind of authoritative significance in a courtroom. So next section four, capitalization, dictionaries, and special words. Despite the importance attributed by sovereign citizens to the specific capitalization of words or names, these arguments are also without merit. Although the capitalization used in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution appear unique to present-day readers, the drafters used a then-common stylistic choice to capitalize nouns likely owed to Germanic language heritage. Additionally, captioning court documents with all capital letters complies with um, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Section 10A, and the use of all capital letters in the caption of court documents is a typographical convention without legal significance. Ultimately, capitalization is irrelevant to establishing substantive rights or proving some hidden meaning in an indictment or legal pleading. You can absolutely file something where the, where the header is not in all caps, especially if you're a pro per, uh, and they'll accept it. it. It doesn't mean anything. It just, it just doesn't. You could write the damn thing in crayon, and I've seen it, and they'll accept it. Um, sovereign citizens also make the mistake of relying on excerpts of cases, dictionary definitions, and isolated statutes to, quote, prove their claims. As previously discussed, the Supreme Court alone has the power to def definitively interpret and define the terms that appear in the Constitution or federal statutes. For that reason, sovereign citizens' reliance on state court opinions to support their various constitu constitutional claims is fundamentally flawed. Nor may individuals rely on dictionary definitions to determine the precise meaning of words that appear in the Constitution. Even though venerated publications such as Black's Law Dictionary may be helpful or illuminating, they are not binding legal authority and cannot be relied upon to establish one's rights. 
you cannot roll into a courtroom with a copy of Black's Law Dictionary and stand there and argue with the judge that the judge is wrong or the word doesn't mean that. Um, judge don't care, okay? Um, it's what the cases and codes say. And the, the law dictionary is, is basically for law students learning the way around the law or for clarifying a really esoteric phrase. Um, I probably pull it out once a year, maybe. Um, so moving on. Five, birth certificates, social security numbers, and the uniform commercial code, um, also known as the UCC. Lastly, social security numbers, birth certificates, and invocation of the UCC, invocations of the UCC do not constitute a contract with the government, nor do they represent tacit government acknowledgement of some artificial person. Here's my editorial. Anybody who's ever tried to enter into a contract with the government knows that you're not going to slip and accidentally get into one. Um, government contracts are a pain in the ass. Okay? I do a lot of them. I see them very frequently. Um, you would know if you were entering into a contract with the government, okay? Um, they're long, they're drawn out, they have a lot of terms in them, there are federal contracting standards. There's no accidental contracting with the government, okay? Um, Social Security numbers and birth certificates are merely records designed to track births and citizens, and the UCC is inapplicable to the federal government and without legal authority unless codified by a state. Birth certificates are legal documents issued by the state in which a birth occurs, and Social Security numbers are a form of identification issued by the Social Security Administration, an agency of the federal government. Neither birth certificates nor Social Security numbers recognize or impose contractual rights, obligations, or duties. Just look at what they do to Social Security. They raid the fund, they increase the fund, they charge you more, they change the retirement age. There's no contract there. You can't unilaterally modify a contract. There's no contract. Nor would the government want there to be one, okay? Because then they couldn't do whatever they wanted. All right, moving on. Additionally, birth certificates are non-transferable items and do not qualify as commercial paper under the off-cited UCC Section 3-104, nor may a person legally profit from the sale of birth certificates as such, such documents hold no commercial value. Um, pointedly, 42 U.S.C. Section 405 grants the Commissioner of Social Security the statutory authority to issue Social Security numbers requiring applicants for Social Security account numbers to provide the Commissioner with evidence of age, citizenship, or alien status and true identity. If Social Security numbers were actually a grant or recognition of an artificial citizenship conferred by the government, there would be no requirement to provide evidence of any additional facts. The UCC, which sovereign citizens rely on to establish substantive rights and to divest themselves of their artificial U.S. citizenship, deals primarily with transactions involving personal property and not real property. The UCC itself isn't even law. Instead, it's proposed law, created as a joint project of the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws and the American Law Institute, both private organizations, that can be adopted by states. Once enacted, the UCC is codified into a state's code of statutes. The U.S. government, as the sovereign, is not bound by such state statutes as the UCC. And although unrelated to the redemption scheme generally, the UCC also cannot provide a basis for challenges to federal incarceration. Because again, no federal government jurisdiction here, okay? Um, all right, the next section is called Citizenship and Jurisdiction. I turn now to sovereign citizens' claims regarding citizenship and jurisdiction. The Citizenship Clause and Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as other federal statutes, provide the government with jurisdiction to prosecute citizens and 
non-citizens living in the United States. And non-citizens, right? So I don't care if you abdicate your U.S. citizenship. They still have jurisdiction over you because you're living in the United States. So Section 1, Citizenship Clause. Section 1, Clause 1 of the 14th Amendment, the Citizenship Clause, states that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. In United States versus Wong Kim Ark, the Supreme Court examined this clause and its implications for children born in the United States of foreign parents. The court noted that it is beyond doubt that before the adoption of the 14th Amendment, all white persons, at least, born within the sovereignty of the United States were native-born citizens of the United States. But the citizenship's clause, the citizenship clause's main purpose, doubtless, was to put it beyond doubt that all blacks, as well as whites, born or naturalized within the jurisdiction of the United States, are citizens of the United States. The phrase, subject to its jurisdiction, the court concluded, was intended to exclude from its operation children of ministers, consuls, and citizens or subjects of foreign states born within the United States. The court also addressed any distinction between citizenship of the United States and citizenship of a state, stating that it is only necessary that he should be born or naturalized in the United States to be a citizen of the Union, but state citizenship requires federal citizenship and residence. So that's we can talk about domicile on another on another episode. Um, in other words, while a person's state citizenship is dependent on residency, every citizen of a state is ipso facto a citizen of the United States. So how's that? What is a citizen of the United States? Is it a fictional corporate entity as believed by sovereign citizens? The answer is pretty clear. A citizen for purposes of the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause is the actual physical person born or naturalized in the United States. First, it would be in inapposite to include the phrase born or naturalized in the citizenship clause if the amendment was merely meant to establish the creation of artificial or corporate citizens. Corporations are formed, not born or naturalized. As illuminated by the court, a corporation is a citizen of the United States in the sense that a corporation organized under the laws of one of the states is a citizen of that state, but it is not within the clause of the 14th Amendment, which declares that native-born and naturalized citizens of the United States shall be citizens of the state where they reside. A lot of people get really con really confused with the... Um, um, the personhood theory of, of corporations, you got to have somebody to soup if the corporation does something wrong. That's the only reason why it talks about corporations as citizens of states. So continuing on, although corporations have some rights under the first, fourth, and fifth amendments, they do not have the same rights as an actual person, such as the right against self-incrimination or the right to bear arms. I love the second amendment because it always exposes absurdities when you apply it in this way. Um, so, you know, try and apply the Second Amendment to Microsoft. That makes no sense, and we don't really want it to make sense because that would be terrifying. <laughs> so moving on, although corporations have so oh, I said that already. Second, the federal government likely cannot unilaterally revoke an individual citizenship. In Ephraim versus Rusk, the Supreme Court held that once acquired, 
this 14th Amendment citizenship was not to be shifted, canceled, or diluted at the will of the federal government, the states, or any other governmental unit. And although sovereign citizens believe that the only way the government will contract with you is if you waive your inalienable rights and agree to be under their jurisdiction, citizenship is conferred upon birth or naturalization and cannot be lost unless the citizen voluntarily relinquishes, relinquishes that citizenship. Moreover, if the artificial person's citizenship was merely a contractual agreement, UCC section 2-3092 would permit that indefinite contract to be terminated at any time by either party, something that the government can't do, and you don't want them to be able to do. So please stop arguing this. Third, if the citizenship conferred by the 14th Amendment was contractual in nature, the Supreme Court's analysis and holdings in cases such as Wong Kim Ark would be wholly unnecessary. Instead of deciding whether a child born in the United States to foreign-born parents becomes, at the time of his birth, a citizen of the United States by virtue of the first clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the court would have asked whether the petitioner in that case was bound by contract or agreement. Because the court instead analyzed the issues in terms of the historical context of birthright citizenship, the sovereign citizen's interpretation is implicitly flawed. So what about the cases cited for the proposition that the federal government created a second class of citizenship for artificial persons? While it is as true that the distinction between citizenship of the United States and citizenship of a state is clearly recognized and established, that distinction is not the one propagated by sovereign citizens. So in Chisholm versus Georgia, the Supreme Court decided whether the Constitution abrogated a state's sovereign, sovereign immunity in a suit brought by a citizen of another state. In finding that it did, the court recounted the history of nations, sovereignty, and the natural order. The court declared that the state is an artificial person, subordinate to the people. Editorial, you hear that, states? You're supposed to be subordinate to the people. Okay, that's another uh, that's another episode. Anyway, it continues. The only reason I believe why a free man is bound by human laws is that he binds himself upon the same principles upon which he becomes bound by the laws, he becomes amenable to the courts of justice, which are formed and authorized by those laws. If one free man, an original sovereign, may do all this, why may not an aggregate of free men, a collection of original sovereigns, do this likewise? As previously, as previously mentioned, sovereign citizens take this quote to mean that a state, as an artificial person created by the people, cannot rule over them as sovereigns. That view, however, is drawn from isolated words and phrases. In fact, Chisholm's holding rested on the notion that once sovereignty is relinquished by we the people to a government or by the states to the federal government, a state cannot continue to claim sovereign immunity. And this is exactly what happened when the states ratified the Constitution and the 14th Amendment. In fact, the Chisholm court hypothetically questioned whether an entity can make a contract, break it, and then, when called into court, avoid judgment by declaring, I am a sovereign state. The court's answer was clear, surely not. Accordingly, although a state is considered as subordinate to the people, everything else is subordinate to the state, including individual citizens. So I think this Chisholm versus Georgia case deserves a little bit more conversation. So this case was from 1793, and the law is no longer binding, um, subsequent to the, the passing of the 11th Amendment. Um, but the, the background is essentially, um, there was a, in, in uh, 1977, the Executive, Executive Council of Georgia authorized Thomas Stone and Edward Davies as commissioners of the state to purchase goods from Robert Farquhar, a South Carolina merchant to help station troops in Savannah who were in dire need of supplies. They agreed to give him $169,000, 
uh, for his merchandise. However, at the time of Farquhar's death in 1784, he had not received payment. The estate filed a claim for the debt with the Georgia legislature in 1789, but was met with a committee report refusing payment. So instead, the committee suggested the estate sue Stone and Davies as they had withdrawn the funds meant for Farquhar from the state treasury. Okay. So this is considered one of the first U.S. or the first U.S. Supreme Court case of, of real significance. This was actually argued um, prior to the pronouncement of the review in Marbury versus Madison, and there was very little available legal precedent in U.S. law. But the court, in a 4-1 decision, ruled in favor of Alexander Chisholm, the executor of an estate of the citizen, Farquhar, um, holding that Article 3, Section 2 grants federal courts jurisdiction in cases between a state and a and another, a state and a citizen of another state, wherein the state is the defendant. Um, I like this decision. This is this is states need to be liable for their shit. Um, Unfortunately, it was suspended um, by the 11th Amendment, as I mentioned, um, and then it was the 11th Amendment, which is kind of considered binding by a subsequent case, which was Hollingsworth versus Virginia. Virginia. Um, it sucks. That's that's your date. 1798 is when the Supreme Court formally established sovereign immunity in federal courts, um, in, and that was in... Uh, Hans versus Louisiana, that's the 1890 case, and then in state courts in Alden versus Maine, and that was late, that's 1999, um, and I hate this. I mean, if, if anybody who's listening knows me, you know how I feel about sovereign immunity. Um, what the hell does your governmental station have to do with being liable for bad acts? Um, I don't like it. Um, so there's my feelings on that, but I thought it would be good to give you a really short outline of the Chisholm versus Georgia kind of case um, area and the, and the cases related to it. It's, it's kind of interesting. So that gets us right to about 30 minutes. And as I keep mentioning, I'm trying to not make these more than about 30 minutes long because they're, you know, it gets, it's kind of dry as hell. Um, even though I think it's really interesting. So the next section we'll talk about is um, section two of the article, which is talks about the privileges or immunities clause. It's really interesting. Interesting. It gets more into the Fourteenth Amendment stuff, which I really think is is fascinating, um, with reference to like what's going on in the world today, what's going on at our borders, what should we what should we do with that? How do I feel about that? So, I I am torn. I I really am kind of an agorist at heart, right? So I don't think that arbitrary lines drawn in the dirt matter. I mean, unless we're talking about ownership of private property, but if we're talking about, um, you know, traversing on BLM land from, you know, between California and Nevada, like I, I don't find those lines to be super compelling. Um, I don't even find the line between Mexico and the United States to be super compelling, except that um, here in the U.S. we have a pretty robust system of... Um, I don't want to call them entitlements. I hate that word. I feel like it's loaded. We, we have a pretty robust system of stuff you can get if you live here and meet certain need criteria. Um, doesn't really matter what your feelings are on that need criteria. Um, they don't do a great job of... God, I'm going to get in so much trouble saying this. I don't feel that our government does a great job of gatekeeping those entitlements. I think they do a great job of gatekeeping those entitlements in the wrong way. I think a lot of people that legitimately need them don't get them because the government is a hot mess. And I think that on the other hand, some people get them that maybe according to the letter of the law 
aren't supposed to. Now, you can disagree with what the, what the standards are. You can disagree and say, well, I don't think you should have to be a citizen. Okay, that's cool. But, like, the rules are what they are. So you need to go change the rules, right? So that's whatever. So my problem is, is that, um, one, taxation is theft. And even though it exists, there's a finite number of that that the U.S. government has. And if they're going to use that tax money for certain things, then people here... Um, you know, under either amnesty, immigration, or whatever laws should be the ones to be getting that. Now, look, I really, really, really believe that if you want to come on over and not lean on those taxpayer-funded, you know, entitlement programs and do whatever you want, I don't actually care if people want to come here. It's a big country. I don't know if you guys have watched any of the episodes of um, Bullshit by Penn & Teller, um, but there's one that talks about it seems like it's unrelated, but it's not. It talks about landfills and like recycling. And one of the points they make is like, we have so much room in the US. I'm not saying fill it up, right? But um, there are places in the US where you can drive for hours and not see another another human. Um, we're, we're not full. LA is full. Seattle's full. New York is full. There are places that are not full. But you know, you can't be, you can't come here and say, oh, okay, take care of me. Um, I know my position is very controversial to a lot of my very good friends. Um, sorry. I, I just, I don't find borders compelling. And that, you know, kind of stresses out my conservative friends. And I don't think that you should be able to wander here and uh, benefit from entitlements from a system that you didn't pay into or follow the laws from so that and that pisses off my liberal friends so um now that i've made everybody angry at the end of my episode um i am going to sign off we will continue next time with the privileges or immunities clause and maybe next time i'll add some stuff in about what we're doing around here on the uh I haven't come up with a name with it yet, but it's like the tiny HOA homestead, um, my 800 square foot of garden in the back there. Um, maybe I'll talk about that a little bit and the hydroponic system I've got going so I don't totally um, bake everybody's brain with legal stuff. So that being said, thank you for listening in to episode 11. I will catch you next time. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.